Good morning, everyone. It's my privilege to continue our Christmas series called Beautiful Collision. We are a week away. Ha, can't believe it. As I think about it, one of our family traditions at Christmas is a gift exchange. And I know a number of people play this game where everybody brings a 5 to 10 or 15 or $20 gift, or it's made to look like that, if you know what I mean. And uh, they, they uh, you know, you put it in a pile and then you have a mechanism where somebody gets a gift and then don't develop a relationship with that gift because you may lose it because, you know, you can exchange and all that. In our, in our family, we do with dice. And if you get 7-Eleven or doubles, you can do something. And so we set a timer and it gets really crazy the last couple of minutes because, you know, time's running out. You hope you dice something that you can get the gift that you want. People get upset. You know, it's just, it's beautiful. Love it. <laughs> the gifts come in different sizes and, you know, different sizes, different wrappings. Inevitably, one of those gifts will be wrapped beautifully. It is not mine. It's got ribbons on it. It'll have a nice, beautiful bow on the top of it. And it screams at all of us, I am the gift you want. But uh, I'm a veteran at this now. And uh, I know that that can be completely false advertising. Um, Often it is not the gift that looks the nicest and it's all neat and tidy with a beautiful bow on it that's actually the most valuable gift. Sometimes it's the ugly one, the, the least suspecting one that is the one that you really want. In his book, Plan B, Pastor Pete Wilson states emphatically, Christianity does not have a bow on it. Following Jesus does not lead to nice and tidy lives where everything works out the way we would plan it. We may want that, we may hope for that, but that's not necessarily how it works. Jesus does give a better life, but that does not mean that our life will be predictable or more comfortable. And so if we're trying to coax people towards Jesus, saying that, that if they're nice and not naughty, that things are going to work out the way that they want and according to their plan, that is false advertising. And it doesn't represent the God of the Bible, but more of a God of our own making. If you think about it, a God who is infinite, who is superior in knowledge and vast in his wisdom, whose ways are higher than our ways, and we're going to interact with him, I would expect, we should expect at some point in that relationship, there are going to be times where I'm going to be in angst, where I don't get it, I don't understand. A place of perplexity. And this morning, as we look at the Christmas story and, and really the, the story of the Bible, we're going to look at different stories. And we're, what we're going to find is there's this common collision of the purpose of God and the perplexity of human beings that go together. So let's start. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Abraham is given a promise at his age of around 75 years old. He hadn't asked for this promise. He wasn't looking for it. God just gives it to him. And it says in Genesis chapter 12, these words, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you, I will curse and in, you, and in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, some of you here might be around Abraham's age at the time, 75. And, you know, you, you probably have retirement down already and you have future expectations of your retirement. Now, imagine God coming and giving you a promise that completely messes up your retirement picture. Because that's what God did. 
Abraham wasn't looking for this, but God gives him this, gives him this promise. And though Abraham and Sarah had probably settled it long ago that they're going to be childless and that's the fate of life for them, God says, no, actually something's going to happen in your life. All the nations, all the world, the families of the world are going to be blessed through you and your family, and yet Abraham has no child. And so God gives him this promise. It would stir up hope with him in his old age, and yet it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen the next year. And it doesn't happen the next year. And year after year, Abraham has to live with this perplexing promise and the, lack, the, the, the reality that it's just not materializing we read about that angst in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. Abraham said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. Not until approximately 25 years since the beginning of the promise to Abraham is the promise fulfilled and his son is born. You can imagine the celebration. You can imagine like the, just the joy that they would have had. And, you know, they've experienced a miracle. And we could take that story and put it in a box and put the bow on it and put the ribbon there. But the story's not over, is it? If you know how it goes from there, we have this perplexing Situation where God says to Abraham that he wants him to go and sacrifice his only son. Of course, you know the end of the story. He's actually not, doesn't have to do that. But imagine the crisis of faith that Abraham walks through leading up to his journey to that mountain where he's going to sacrifice his son. You know, here, here at Central Heights, we are experiencing this, uh, I don't know, this bonus time where all these babies are being born and our nursery's busting and I love it. And um, I can't wait till we've built a new nursery for our families because that's little children are important to us. And no doubt if you're a parent here who's got a young child or you are a grandparent, like it's important to you because you love them. Now think about God's ask to Abraham regarding the son the only son, the promised son, the son he loves. Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Completely perplexing. Another Genesis story. Let's skip to Joseph. In Genesis 37, Joseph is young, young, one of the youngest sons. His father loves him, and Joseph is given a dream. We read in verse 5 of chapter 37, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. How nice. Then he gets another dream. Then he dreamed another dream, it says in verse 9, and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. How many brothers does he have? He'll have 11. We're bowing down to me. Can you interpret that dream? Wink, wink. Do you know what this means? Wink, wink. Joseph gets a picture of God's purpose for his life, and it's amazing. He's going to be exalted. Even his mom and dad are going to bow down to him. How incredible is that? 
But for years, his circumstances will be the exact opposite. He will be sold into slavery. He will be accused of sexual misconduct. He'll be wrongfully jailed and put in prison. And there in prison, rotting away for a couple of years, He'll think he has this opportunity because he's helped two of the men in the king's court and one survives and Joseph has told him, hey, when you come before the king, remember me because you're going to live. But he's forgotten. Can you say perplexing? With God's purpose, what a collision. Let's fast forward to another story and we could choose many. Story number three, Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a good man and that's the problem. Because Habakkuk, as a good man who wants to follow God and serve God, is living amongst people who are wicked. So all around him, he sees violence and injustice. And that's perplexing to him because God seems like God's not doing anything about it. And Habakkuk is crying out to God and he's not seeing God answer in any way. This is perplexing to him because it seems like God's doing nothing. God, is God a deist? In other words, God just sets the world in motion and has nothing to do with it. He doesn't interfere from it from then on. Is that, is that what God is like? Some people think that. Habakkuk probably was perplexed and tempting to believe that. He cries out to God in verse two of the first chapter. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Have you ever been there? In your circumstances, you just, you just need God to act. You need him to do something and you cry out to him and it's, just seems like nothing. But then God does answer. We read in verse five, God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God's gonna do a work. I mean, it sounds like God's gonna answer Habakkuk's dilemma. He's gonna make things right wonder and be astounded. I've heard people quote these verses as if, as if it's a description of how God is going to do great things in their life or through their ministry. Wonder and be astounded. But what God is saying is, I'm going to make it worse. You think, Habakkuk, you're perplexed now? You think you're having trouble understanding what's going on now? Wonder and be astounded. You wouldn't believe what I'm going to do next because, see, what God says is that he's going to take a nation that's more wicked than the Jews, and he's going to use them, this wicked nation, to punish Habakkuk's people. We read in verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And Habakkuk is completely perplexed. I guess we should not be surprised when we're talking with one another about what's going on in our lives and though we have a deep desire to follow Jesus, that for some of us in our conversation, we're going to hear stories where things are, things are just difficult right now, where things don't seem to make sense, where things are not night, nice, neat, and tidy. They're messy. And it may even seem for some of us in this moment like God's not doing anything about it. Scripture proclaims that God is sovereign and that God is good that in the moment there can be uncertainty. There can be seemingly unanswered prayer. There can be disappointment. The question is, how do we respond? Of course, the Christmas story will be different, won't it? Our cards read peace and joy on earth. 
I mean, the angels did proclaim peace on earth, goodwill towards men. There was joy at the announcement of the coming, the arrival of Jesus. This morning, we lit a candle of joy. There's a reason for this, but it's not superficial because if we dig a little deeper, we find that in this collision between God's great purpose and the reality of human lives that there is perplexity even in the Christmas story that is most profound. Let's pick it up in Matthew chapter one. In his version of, of the story, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Have you heard that word in your normal conversations, talking about you know, couples that might be thinking about marriage someday? Have you heard that word, betrothed? It's not a normal word that we would use. I mean, normally for us, the word engagement is a very familiar word. Well, so let's go back and get a little context. Little context. In the Jewish setting, first century Ju Judaism, um, there were two separate ceremonies that involved a man and a woman coming together to be man and wife for the rest of their life. The first ceremony uh, went like this. And, and it had a lot to do with families interacting with one another. But the, the groom, prospective groom would go to the home of the prospective bride. And I don't know if his dad might be with him. But they would do a negotiation. They would negotiate a bride price. That's right, dollars. Financial transaction. So they would agree on what they were going to give as a, as a price for the bride. I'm thinking we should reinstitute this. I'm thinking I maybe missed the boat on this, but I got one more chance. So a price would be arranged, and then when that amount was paid, they'd have this ceremony where they would drink some wine and they would enter into covenant so that the, the prospective groom and the prospective bride were actually now considered to be legally married. They were betrothed to one another but they did not yet live together. So that was the first part. So from the betrothal on, the woman was considered legally married to the man, but she didn't move in yet. She stayed in the home of her parents and prepared over the next 12 months for their actual move in. And the, and the prospective groom, he went home and he spent 12 months preparing a place for her. Does that sound biblically familiar? I go and prepare a place for you. Usually they would add a room onto the existing family's home. They didn't have the money, the finances, the well-being to you know, buy their first starter home. They would build another room. They would make a place for the, the, the groom and the bride to now live in. This takes place over about 12 months before he comes and he gets her, usually with a procession, candles maybe lit at night, torches lit and they come, he would come and he would get her. And there'd be this procession, procession. they go back to the groom's place and there there'd be a party. And then, and only then, would they consummate their, the legalities physically. So do you hear what I'm saying? Read between the lines. They were like legally married for 12 months but had no sex. Some people in our society would say, now that is a miracle. 12 months Legally married, no sex. Everybody in the community knows that this is how it works. This is how it goes. This is the way that it is done. Some of you I know have moved to the West Coast here from small towns in the prairies. 
And a friend of mine in talking with him and his childhood would tell me stories. Um, it sounds like he was quite the character. But when you're in a small town and you do things like not just your family knows about it, everybody knows about it. Because it's everybody's business to know about it, right? In a small town like that. And so when you do things you're not proud of, uh, you can hide some of them. But when, when a young couple has sex and, one, and the girl gets pregnant, you cannot hide that. And everybody starts talking. So think about Mary's culture. It's a culture of honor and shame. Think about how important family is in a culture like that. Even a marriage was an agreement, more so between families than it was individualized. And in our world, we're so individualized and, and the stigma of, of um, premarital sex and unmarried pregnancy is so largely removed, but not so, not so for Mary. This, this will be traumatic. Who will believe her? Who is going to believe her story that lies within her is a miracle from God that Joseph, Joseph and her have been, have been pure this whole time? Who's, I mean, come on. Who is going to believe her? Girls married at a young age, so probably between 13 and 15 years of age, and this once and only unique act in history happens to you, who's going to believe you? The word on the street will be pss, pss, pss. Mary's an adulteress. Or, yeah, Mary and Joseph, they weren't raised very well. They couldn't wait. Shame, shame, shame. So when the angel came to Mary, we need to understand the risk for Mary in accepting God's call in her life was enormous and perplexing. Think of the things that she could have been worrying at night that would have kept her up at night if she followed through with this, not knowing how Joseph would respond to it, how her community would respond to it. This shame would, would, would certainly um, <clears throat> culminate and likely compound to divorce. I mean, what man's going to believe her story? And so most likely she would end up being divorced because she had been unfaithful, or so it seems, and would have smattered her potential husband's character and reputation. There could be punishment. So we, we know the law permitted a man and woman caught in the act of adultery to be stoned. And if she lived as a divorced single, she would be a shunned single probably for the rest of her life because who would want her? She's a tarnished good. And who would want her? And living as a single woman in that kind of society is not unlike it is, in, sadly, in many places in our world where a single woman is, is economically um, at disadvantaged and socially disadvantaged. This is the prospect for Mary. God, why does it have to be this way? Perplexing. Now think how, of how it was for Joseph. We read in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is described as a just man. The Hebrew word is Sadiq. It means to be a man, uh, they were recognized as a, as a man who had a reputation for learning God's law, for, for being immersed in it, knowing it, and then living it out in a, in a faithful way. He's a righteous man. He has a reputation. He's a Sadiq. The news that Mary has brought him is, is extremely challenging for a man of his kind of reputation because of what he stands to suffer because of it. Scott McKnight in his book, The Jesus Creed, talks about his own reputation growing up and as he relates it to Joseph's. And, 
Scott was esteemed, he says, not as a Sadiq, but as an athlete. And then something happened. McKnight says, when I wasn't looking over my shoulder and when I was least expecting it, the Lord invaded my life, worked the miracle we call conversion, and simply ruined my reputation. Word got out on the street, especially among the athletes, that McKnight had converted. And he became the subject of ridicule in locker room banter that sometimes questioned his manhood. Relating to Joseph, McKnight says, Joseph's reputation as a Sadiq is about to be challenged because things are being said in the locker rooms of Nazareth about his fiance. What will he do? No doubt Joseph had to wrestle with Mary's story. We know she must have told him at some point what has happened to her, how it's happened, but it's so unbelievable. I mean, it's just so unbelievable. Joseph has to wrestle with the implications to his reputation. It is perplexing. And we read in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Maybe it simmered with Joseph after Mary told him for a couple of days only, but maybe it was a couple of weeks. Maybe it was a couple of months after Mary went to her cousin's Elizabeth and then came back. We don't know for certain, but we know that Joseph would have been going through mental turmoil because it says he had to resolve something. When you resolve something, that means there's something going on and you have to make yourself, you make a decision. What should he do? Joseph could make a spectacle of Mary and put it all on her so the community clearly knows, hey, I had nothing to do with this. I'm a Sadiq. I'm a righteous man. I want to keep my reputation. And he could have divorced her publicly to save his own name. How righteous is this man? Well, he demonstrates it in this. He resolves he will divorce her quietly. And he'll bear some of the shame. Abraham, Joseph, Habakkuk, Mary, the Joseph we're reading about now, each one in the collision of God's purposes are put in circumstances that are completely perplexing. In God's purpose. And we could speak of many other lives in the biblical record. We could speak of church history where you see this. And no doubt, as we speak to one another, we could think about our own stories and our own lives where we have experienced it, where we are experiencing it, or let me tell you, where we will experience it in the future. You might be there right now. And with all this Christmas cheer and talk of peace and joy, it's just hard. What's your response going to be? When it's your turn, when it's your time, in those moments, what's your response going to be? What is my response when there's anger, when there's frustration, when there's disappointment? Deep down, what's, what's at the root of that? Is will I trust God or will I not? Will I believe him for his promises and his faithfulness and the stories that I read throughout the Old Testament? When people went through their perplexity, will I be like one of those who will trust him at the core, at the bottom? Am I rooted in a trust and a belief in God or now am I going to bail? Because there's not a pretty ribbon and I can't see a bow for it right now. What am I going to do? See, following God may be the very reason it has gotten hard for you right now. Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God, says this, anytime God leads you to do something that has God-sized dimensions, you will face a crisis of belief 
When you face a crisis of belief, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. In the biblical record, there are those who leave a legacy of inspirational faith, and there are those who leave a legacy that doesn't do that. In the defining moment is so often these times of crisis where purpose of God meets perplexity. It's that defining moment. What would they do? And what will we do? Will we look and trust the unfailing record of God for the present and the future and be like Mary who said, let it be according to your word. I'll embrace it. An angel will appear to Joseph in a dream. He will confirm to Joseph what Mary has probably already tried to tell him. We read in Matthew 1, verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And how will Joseph respond? He obeyed. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did. As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and they called his name Jesus. As we read God's beautiful history in the story, in the book we call the Bible, we find this amazing faithfulness of God. As we begin to look at the life of Jesus, we find the almost sacrifice of Abraham is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We find the story of Joseph where he forgives those that you know, have despitefully treated him and put him into slavery. How he forgives them, we, we see that fulfilled in multiple greater ways in the person of Jesus Christ. When we see the angst of Habakkuk and his cry for justice, we see that fulfilled ultimately in the per person of Jesus, of Jesus Christ in God's beautiful purpose and then in the most perplexing manner through Mary the promise of David's son an eternal king will would be fulfilled in the most unsuspecting way a virgin conceiving a righteous man stepping out in faith saying yes to God living by faith obeying raising up a savior who will come as a suspected suspected illegitimate child shamed in the streets but identifying with the least the poor and those who are treated with shame. And then in the most perplexing way, walk in obedience with God's purpose towards the cross. And there, in the most unimaginable act, suffer and die by his will on a cross. The Jesus, who indeed saved his people from their sins, a sacrifice for you for me, for all mankind. Most perplexing for his mother Mary, her soul would be pierced, but in doing so, sin, Satan, and death will be conquered. And it makes a way for God to do what he will do in the end when justice will be served and those who put their trust in him will be forgiven and all that we've hoped for will come to pass. 
and he will put a bow on it, accomplishing his great purpose. In the meantime, the completely trustworthy promises of God embedded in his beautiful purpose will thread their way through our lives in sometimes completely perplexing circumstances. How will we respond? To Habakkuk, in his perplexity, these famous words that God spoke to him, the righteous shall live by faith. Joseph was a righteous man and chose to do just that. All these saints show us the way. The righteous shall live by faith. Christmas is a time to be in awe of God's amazing purpose and plan that flows through to his, the, the coming of Jesus Christ to take on human flesh, to become like one, one of us, to, to live so that he could eventually die for us and save us from our sins and then create a church of which we are part of now that will live out till the end of the age when he comes again and makes everything right. It's a time to be in awe of this amazing purpose of God, recognizing though that in that purpose we will also find ourselves in the moment, in perplexity, and Christmas reminds us that it is always a time to trust. It's always a time to believe in God. It's always a time to declare, I don't know what's going on in my life, God, but I trust you and I believe in you. And so I'm going to obey. I'm going to do the next thing that you call me to do, Lord, because I trust you. You've never failed and you never will. How we respond to perplexity will greatly affect our future. God is working faithfully, purposely, and if we believe that, we can get our response to trust and resolve. And I believe this with all my heart. Our faith and trust and obedience will prove right in the end because God is good and he is sovereign and he is working his beautiful purpose. Let's pray together. Father,